Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just gone over the clock to four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday home time. Jan Bartlett, I'll be here till four, from four to six. Today, the run for Palestine. It's on on November the 6th, beginning at 10am. Run round the tan or walk round the tan. I'll be speaking to Nessa Marshi, who's one of the organisers of the run. What peace activist Graeme Dunstan got up to at Alice Springs and Pine Gap in a couple of weeks ago? All the activities up there. The history of the Catholic Church, i.e. Hitler's Pope and the Vatican's secret service. He's speaking to historian and author Brian McKinlay. Tim Anderson has an update on the situation in Syria and the wider Middle East. And in the last part of the interview, the program, Anne Miller, one of the women, denied access to Gaza when their boat was boarded and detained off the coast of Gaza and then they were deported. She'll be speaking about the voyage and what happened when they were boarded. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and this is another one of his weeks. A week, journalist, and when the Nobel Committee displayed its long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden work at an iron bias by taking a stand against good, clean, saving the world from poverty coal, fossils generally, by unleashing all over the airwaves that anthem of the long-haired Luddites, the answer is blowing in the wind. While the short-haired work their guts out for all of us non-Luddite fossils had even more cause to attack renewable energy when large parts of Melbourne were left in the dark for the second week in a row. No sooner back on than off again. Power blackouts during extreme weather, which is no longer extreme weather, which has nothing whatever to do with climate change because there's no such thing. But obviously the culprit must be renewables because the fossils explain that the blackouts in South Tribulawasi were obviously caused by unreliable renewables and good, good coal would have kept flowing through those power lines lying limply on the ground next to the twisted pylons. So there's no doubt the Victorian blackout must have been caused by renewables and the fossils must have remained silent about it because they're sick of their warnings blowing in the wind. And they know the opportunistic renewables Renewable Luddites would say, if you say renewables cause South Trublowazi, then fossils must have caused Melbourne, which the fossils know makes no sense at all, so don't give them the opportunity to talk such misleading nonsense. One fossil blowing plenty of wind, no contradiction there, one non-contradictory fossil blowing plenty of non-contradictory wind, US of the UN of the US of the world would be big supremo Donald Trample the poor, after a bit of locker room bonking, or sorry, banter last week, this week, as more women turn up claiming Donald molested them, said they were playing the pro-commie agenda of the notoriously left-wing US of media. And we couldn't doubt that, because who in their right mind would think Donald would ever molest a woman? Here's a man who so loves women, he owned and ran the Miss US of and Miss Universe quests, based, as he kept saying, on personality and intelligence and thinking and nothing, absolutely nothing to do with appearance, despite the much-promoted bikini section, which Donald pointed out was optional. 
If a young, attractive, sexy, sexy woman had objections to being ogled by millions in a bikini, then we would not enforce that. It is optional. Let me assure you, there is no doubt it is optional. She can opt not to wait a request, which is all about young women, attractive, sexy, sexy young women. And let me make it clear again, looks have nothing to do with it. Attractive, sexy, sexy young women who just love world peace. As I said, who but the most cynical would believe the altruistic entrepreneur who owns the Miss Universe quest just to promote world peace would have a sexist bone in his body? We also pointed out last week not all of his policies were repulsive, as he does plan to toss Hillary into a prison cell, albeit not for war crimes for which she should end up in a prison cell, along with lots of her national co-conspirators and their lackeys in the coalition of the killing like the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo here back in those dark ages and his successors. Although one of those successors, that dear baby Jesus moralist, tiny a bit more for the bosses, said Donald's comments caught on tape. As an aside, wonder how many more tapes may turn up. Although Tiny said Donald's comments were repulsive, he then said despite a bit of alleged sexism, Donald had some excellent policies. America does need to be great again. See? He also believes a one-line slogan repeated 182 times a day constitutes policy, which just might explain the X bit in Tiny's resume. Tiny's successor, Malcolm Tunner Bull, welcomed to True Blue Aussie, that great believer in liberty, freedom and democracy, the latest member of Singapore's ruling family, which must be as brilliant as the great and beloved leader's family in North Korea, as also in Singapore, no one else has such brilliance that the ruling family has no choice but to rule, in the common interest, of course leading to a look of democratic surprise from the latest Lee family member when, still in Parliament House, he was introduced to the opposition leader. Uh, what's he doing here? He looked bemused. Did you uh, let him out of jail for the day? Back to Hillary, who threatened to lock up other people for war crimes, drag evil Russia and evil Syria before the war crimes tribunal. We'd think the US of plutocrats would have the common sense to avoid accusing others of war crimes, but when you rule the world and refuse to acknowledge the very war crimes tribunal you recommend others have to front, suppose it doesn't matter, and that overruling of their big supremo barack for change, change, changes veto of a bill to allow US of citizens to sue that admired believer in liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi Arabia, over the 9-11 which killed US of citizens, not the one in which the US of slaughtered Chilean citizens, evil, long-haired, commie Chilean citizens. Those opposing the move pointed out this could open the floodgates to the US of being sued unfairly for its role in maintaining liberty, freedom, democracy, peace all over the world. Give them the good, good government the US of knows they need and deserve, and mustn't the lucky, lucky, liberated people of Iraq and Afghanistan thank their gods every morning for the US of. But, we asked Republican Senator Chuck Stupid III, why don't they sue Iraq, Afghanistan, the, the countries you invaded after your 9-11? Because they had nothing to do with it. And good news and good news on the work front.
on what lazy avaricious workers can say to their caring employers after the fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it commission ruled it's okay to call someone every nasty, sexist, you name it, insult we can think of after a BHP, bloody huge profits worker, and a supervisor exchanged pleasantries like the C word, all you do is suck dick, and on it went a litany of expletive deleted abuse. But the worker was sacked only after he called contract workers scabs. All the other words are okay. Call the boss what we like. Scab is the most offensive word that can be used. Bloody huge argued before the commission, which ruled the sacking unfair, but only because the caring employer hadn't made it clear calling a scab a scab was a sackable offence. Now they've made it clear it is. But all the other expletives? Open slather. Let fly. Although we'd hope workers wouldn't use the sexist word. And bloody huge is sort of correct. There is nothing lower than a scab bringing us to the perfect timing of the week award, just as the government brings in legislation to bolster the economy, and big supremo Malcolm assured us just this morning the Get the Evil Union's Jackboots Commission bill is all about the economy and nothing, absolutely nothing to do with evil union bashing. Not that bashing unions is evil, but bashing evil unions, if you follow, nothing to do with, just as what better proof of the undermining the economy, attacking the economy role of evil unions, than that an honourable dear baby Jesus senator's good for the economy, development and housing company, a good caring knows there's no such thing as class struggle employer, now ex-senator Bob Bad Day, clearly went to the wall by the greed of the evil unions. Perfect timing if ever we needed proof that evil unions must be reined in. Not as union bashing, of course, but for the good of the economy, for the good of good for the economy companies like ex-senator for the dear baby Jesus Bob's destroyed by the greed of lazy avaricious workers. And as all these true blue Aussies have suffered massive losses thanks to poor Bob's victimhood, Malcolm knows there is no need for any inquiry into the caring employers who have to suffer those who must be investigated, must be kept under control by the jackboots con mission. Hundreds of union officials charged with breaking the law cited by Malcolm and the team as proving the need for the jackboots commission. Ah uh, yes, what have these evil criminals been charged with? Well, representing workers, seeking wage increases, raising health and safety issues and similar heinous crimes. But that's what union officials have always done. It's legal. Not anymore showing just how evil these union officials are and a good man like Bob said he'd do all he could for those he'd ripped off. S sorry, who'd lost their savings. I'll pray for them. He lifted all their worries off their shoulders. And same day, all these crook casino workers got arrested in China. Must be some extended criminal activity of the evil unions. I'm so worried. Big crook supremo Jamie Packer-Punch looked so worried. Understandable, Jamie. You're, you're worried about the fate of your workers. Come on, talk bloody sense. There's no shortage of bloody workers. Have you seen the share price? Nothing like a chip off the old. Finally, back where we started on a Nobel note, a Nobel tribute. How many times does a sexist deny before his denial is denied? How many times must innocents die 
before we know warmongers light. The answer, my friend. Good afternoon. It's a bit hard to follow that one, isn't it? That's Mr Kevin Healy, and sounds so we had a, a bit of fun with that one. And you can have some more fun tomorrow between 9 and 10 on his program, City Limits. Common Ground Festival is back this November, featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Waramara, The Deans, plus loads more. Complimenting the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance. It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way. So visit commongroundfestival.org.au for your tickets. A 3CR supporter. Later in the program, we'll hear from one of the peace activists prevented from reaching Gaza by boat by the Israeli armed forces. The aim of that voyage was to give hope and send a message of solidarity from people around the world to the besieged people of Gaza, living in the biggest prison in the world. But others support Gaza in other ways, and one is the now annual Run for Palestine, originally only in Melbourne, but this year in Adelaide as well. And it's Sunday the 6th of November. People are meeting at 10am. And money raised supports Palestinian children, not only in occupied Palestine, but refugees in neighbouring countries such as Jordan and Lebanon. Nasser Mashi is one of the organisers of the Run Stroke Walk, which is an initiative of the Australians for Palestine organisation, and it's around the TAN. Nasser, the focus of the run is Palestinian children. On the program recently, Kim Bullimore spoke about the abuse of Palestinian children in the West Bank, where they're arrested, tortured and jailed for as little as stone throwing. But the grim fact is that all Palestinians, whether in the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, suffer every day. What is the reality of life for Palestinian children? The figures are tough to come by because, you know, being under military occupation, any sort of NGO work is at the behest of the occupying power and the Israeli army in this instance. Um, I I can talk to a a couple of recent challenges uh, that have come to our attention in Australia from both Gaza and the West Bank and East Jerusalem. In in the first instance, in, in Gaza, we've just ticked over the two millionth resident of Gaza, which, you know, has now spent the best part of 10 years under illegal Israeli uh, occupation and siege, a a land, air and um, sea blockade where um, the Israeli uh, army determines the calorific intake required within Gaza and allows that much food to come in. Today, you know, a, a father was interviewed and spoke about, like every father, his hopes and dreams and aspirations for his son and spoke about the, um, the challenges he's facing with respect to his own future, you know, having employment, creating shelter for his young family and, and the real lack of hope or prospect that he has for his own son in, in the first instance in ensuring that, uh, you know, he's fed and warm and clothed and then getting him to school. Palestine PA recently threatened to um, remove from the, the Gaza University accreditation for university degrees so enrolment for this semester has gone right down so that situation in Gaza in, in the West Bank you know kids uh, whether they be in Hebron and having to do with um, 
extremist settlers and trying to get to school or whether it's uh, dealing with checkpoints and military vehicles and incursions or in, you know, occupied East Jerusalem dealing with the reality today that, uh, you know, a stop and search situation can very easily turn into a um, bang, bang, uh, you know, shot, stop or or shoot situation, which uh, has seen over 200 Palestinian youths uh, uh, executed uh, in the past year. And you were actually there a couple of years ago when a situation similar to this happened? Correct, yeah. Look, in fact, it was last year, September last year we were there. So just after the start of this most recent escalation, I mean, we talk about escalation, but the reality is that the perpetuation of the occupation hasn't just happened, the escalation hasn't just happened in this past year, it hasn't happened since Gaza was uh, evacuated by Israeli settlers, it hasn't happened since 1973, the Yom Kippur War, or 67, but way back to to 48 and before that with uh, the original ethnic cleansing of Palestine. We were there, my family and I, in September last year and, you know, witnessed the ongoing barbarity uh, and inhumanity of occupation and often the context is... uh, not given you know occupation is violence and anybody that thinks that an army can just roam the streets in stormtrooper uniforms in armored personnel carriers and tanks and not feel that overwhelming sense of powerlessness and what that does to a a civilian population is is beyond the pale and we can't forget the deprivation of for children in refugee camps palestinian children in neighboring countries absolutely look one of the um Real, uh, aside from the human tragedy that is, that is Syria, and you know something of the order of 13 million Syrians that now need uh, some support, some level of support from from the UN, and six million Syrian refugees that are outside the country, is the untold toll on the Palestinian refugees of Syria. Now th- these Palestinians that were ethnically cleansed in 1948 when the State of Israel was established on on stolen Palestinian villages. Many of them went into what is now the West Bank to some of the same uh, ethnic cleanse after the the Six-Day War and then some of them went to to Jordan and uh, Lebanon and again following um, Black September in, in, in 1970 in Jordan, some of those ended up, more of them ended up in Syria and particularly in the Yarmouk refugee camp and so those residents second third fourth fifth generation palestinians uh have spent the best you know all of their lives uh certainly since uh, they were born there etc uh in in syria have suffered the worst of um of, of uh that civil war from both um assad forces and you know forces aligned with daesh they're now unfortunately classified they can't actually get uh, refugee status anywhere, so they can't get into Lebanon, they can't get into Jordan, the UN won't help them because of some obscure bureaucratic certification as to their status, so they're really, really suffering and a real tragic situation there. One small but effective way to alleviate some of what you've been talking about, the suffering, is through the organisation Olive Kids. Can you talk about that organisation, how it got started, what you hope and what you do achieve? founded Olive Kids now the best part of um, eight years ago and it came from a situation following September 11 where our community very much maligned and and I talk about the Palestinian but also Arabic Islamic community and the concern with respect to wanting to fulfill you know a Christian and Muslim obligation to give charity and the concern that their money may actually end up in the wrong hands if you will 
and uh, not wanting to be, uh, not wanting to see those funds end up in um, in terrorist hands, we sought advice from um, DFAT and, in fact, from uh, uh, some government ministers as to giving us a list of approved recipients. And the only thing they could give us was, in fact, a list of people that were not approved. And we said, well, what if we give it to somebody that's not on that list and then later on you retrospectively determine that they were not approved? And we were told that, well, in that case, you would be, you know, charged under the relevant law. So what we decided to do was set up our own not-for-profit and uh, seek DGR, or tax deductibility status in Australia. We were rebuffed initially and told it was too hard and really uh, had to jump through so many hoops. But we're very proud now, Seven, or it took us seven years to become uh, Australia's first charity with DGR status, so your tax deductibility status, to collect monies for for the Palestinian children. So um, Olive Kids today, you can um, donate to uh, Olive Kids, receive a tax deduction for any donation above $2, and that money is sent through to Gaza and, and an orphanage that uh, we support an orphan. So we've got an orphan sponsorship program. So that's $50 a month, very much modelled on the World Vision program where we you sponsor a kid and get a, an update every uh, six months and you sponsor them through to university and an opportunity for you to sponsor further and in fact this year we launched a capital works program we're endeavoring to build a wing to the existing orphanage the olive kids wing for orphans from uh you know birth to five years old an infant program with israel having such a tight rein on on the west bank and gaza in particular how do you get the funds through because as you said, they even control how much food people can eat. You know, still able through the auspices of um, uh, the Australian government to, to get the money there. So, from that process, look, it, it, it can it happens, and it's you know very much uh, an internet thing. We we have a uh, a set of protocols and procedures that ensures compliance from our affiliate organisations to ensure their compliance with respect to our DGR status and how they use the money. But, look, the the challenge isn't getting the money there. Uh, The challenge is raising enough money and awareness to uh, do the works that we want to do, but also, in the same instance, to raise awareness of the the situation for Palestinians of Gaza, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, those within Israel, and obviously the refugees outside of the borders of historic Palestine. You do that through the year with various fundraising events, but... A big one is the the run round the tan. Yeah, the run for Palestine. So we're very excited. It's our fifth run for Palestine this year. So, um, in fact, this year is the first year that um, uh, participants can register on everydayhero.com.au, which is a uh, crowdfunding uh, website. So Olive Kids is actually on that website now. So um, if you go on to everydayhero.com.au and search Olive Kids, you can create your own donor page. And from there, email your um, friends, associates, and seek sponsorship for for your efforts, whether they be the Run for Palestine, which we hope everybody will attend, or or the Melbourne Marathon, any other sort of fundraising activity. But the Run for Palestine this year is on on the 6th of November, and we've got a change of venue due to the size of it. We've actually moved moved around to Tom's Block, which is on Linlithgow Avenue, sort of closer to um, St Kilda parade and we've got some really exciting stuff a petting zoo and some pony rides for the kids as well as face painting and we'll have uh, as usual uh, prizes for male and female uh, one lap and two lap those that are energetic enough to run around but certainly we would encourage everybody to come along if you just want to partake in the family activities and the barbecue 
uh, come out for a nice family day or walk around the park, there's really no obligation to run. It's really just a, a great opportunity for everybody to get together and raise some awareness about Palestine. But if, you, if people go to the runforpalestine.com.au website, there's an opportunity to register there. and um, all, all funds raised off go through to the Palestine Red Crescent in Gaza, which is the equivalent of the Red Cross. No local administration fees for either the Run for Palestine or Olive Kids. So 100% of funds donated end up in Gaza to those in most need. In the past, it's been a Melbourne event. You've got Adelaide in there now? Yeah, so we're really excited. This will be the first Adelaide event. They're running on the same day, and um, they've already had uh, a huge uh, uptake in, in registration. So we're very excited by the fact that it's we're, we're spreading the message across Australia, and we look forward to hopefully uh, next year adding Sydney and Brisbane and uh, looking to, to add a Perth event as well. be good to get some of those Australian politicians to take part in this too to show a bit of um, gumption and support Palestine? Well, look, we, we would love it. We do, in fact, invite lower and upper house state and federal MPs to all of our events. We're more likely to get an unsubscribe to our email than an attendance, sadly. But, look, we're, we're optimistic that um, our message of um, justice for the Palestinians is, uh, is being more readily accepted today. And just the fact that if this was happening to any other people in the world, there'd be worldwide outrage. One of the great concerns as a Palestinian is the speed at which the West jumps to applying international law wherever it might be. And it could be as simple and, you know, uh, as topical and most recent into um, navigation of the South China Seas. I mean, we had um, the United States and, and now Australia are very concerned about China's works within the South China Seas and, and their concern that uh, uh, China was stealing navigatable waters and international waters took them to the international court. But the, the deprivations and the, the breaking of and fl inter, uh, flouting of international law by Israel in their treatment of the Palestinians just warrants no mention. Uh, it really is both duplicitous and despicable. Absolutely. All right, well, I'll see you there on the 6th and I hope many of our listeners will be there as well. Fantastic, Jan. I look forward to seeing you there. Okay. And I really do hope that listeners will come along on the 6th of November. It all starts about 10 o'clock in the morning where you fill in your registration, if you haven't already, and if most people do. You can do that by everydayhero.com.au and go through to the area for Olive Kids. But I'm sure if you haven't got round to it, you can do it on the day as well. That's at Lynn Lithgow Avenue, round the tan. It's um, near St Kilda Road, so there's no problems with public transport to the area. And you don't have to run, you can walk, you can do whatever you like. You don't even have to go all the way around. It's up to you just how far you want to go or how fast you want to go. It's amazing to see some of the, the younger people and... 2030s or so, round, going around two or three times and having a ball with their T-shirts on saying human rights for Palestine, for all the other people on the tan to see. So that's Sunday, the 6th of November, 10am. And if you want to book, everydayhero.com.au and through to the area for Olive Kids. 
3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. The long-anticipated anti-Pine Gap Rally, Conference, Public Forum, the Alice Springs Peace Convergence 2016 have concluded and people returning to all parts of Australia and some overseas. Graham Dunstan was very much a part of the action during the 19th of September and the 3rd of October and I'll read what Graham says about himself. Peace bus journeys for justice, protests for peace and speaks out for a sustaining earth. Long-time social activist and cultural entrepreneur Graham Dunstan is its captain, the east coast of Australia, its migratory zone. After a long career as an events organiser, Graham, at 74, is an old-age pensioner and just keeps at it as a skillful means of engaging his Buddhism practice in the suffering of the world. He lives in the van, which serves as a mobile kuti, meditation hut. He travels about with laptop and Wi-Fi, horn speakers, work tables and bamboo poles on the roof racks and under his bunk a PA amp plus crates of flags, banners and tools. Best he can he organises events and acts as witness but he likes best to help out at other people's events by rigging flags to add a bit of colour and presence. For him Occupations of public places are an art form. This way he gets to meet the appalled and the passionate, the movers and the shakers, the saints and the prophets of the times. I caught up with Graham on the road outside Alice Springs as he began his long journey back to Sydney and mentioned that a lot was going on, a lot of people were there. What did he see as the main events and happenings over those two weeks? Oh, raising awareness of the nature of Pine Gap and the secret government that keeps it there. So we were quite successful at that, certainly locally. You know, people live with Pine Gap. They live with an estimated 800 CIA, National Security Agency, and the, their surveillance agency, living in the community of Alice Springs and owning property here and spending and all this kind of stuff. So it gets to a state where people don't like to mention the war. It might offend the neighbours, become unseemly at a dinner party or a barbecue to actually raise the fact that we've got spies living amongst us and war criminals. So we got this debate up, certainly got noticed. There was um, front page of the local paper, The Centralian, which is a news Murdoch, own paper, ABC Radio and all that kind of stuff. But we did not dent the security. Uh, we got some national news. We certainly didn't get any international news and it certainly didn't influence the US elections in any way. <laughs> We're just another US spy base and there are lots of them around. 
but the most successful, the most enduring successful outcome was the, um, the mobilisation of the peace movement. Alice Springs is a long way away from the major centres in Australia, but we've got a lot of people here. There would have been 70 at the Disarm Action Camp on the road to Pine Gap, and there would have been 130 or so at the um, conference organised by the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network on the Saturday, the one-day conference. So that's a lot of people coming to town for peace. So a lot of groups working together and good outcomes. We did work well together. There were a lot of action. Let me list some of them. Probably the most spectacular and certainly the enduring image of the protest were the peace pilgrims who came from Brisbane and Cairns. These are faith-based activists, Catholic worker style activists. They made two attempts and or three attempts to get inside the perimeter of um, Pine Gap. The first was unsuccessful. The police rounded us up. I was part of it. <laughs> right. We walked through the night to get to the um, northwestern perimeter of the base on the opposite side to the major service gates. Cross country in this um, buffalo grass, um, mulga, open country. It was flat, but it was rough, I can tell you. At 2.30 in the morning, we got to the perimeter and we thought we'd have a rest. That was a big mistake police had been watching us on infrared scanners, we reckon. Anyway, they rounded us up within, like, we'd been there an hour and a half, and then suddenly they arrived. Within 30 seconds, we had four-wheel drive police vehicles with spotlights boxing us in on four sides with the lights blazing and all these strange federal police officers and NT police giving us orders to get up off the ground. We are pretending to be asleep in the bush, of course. They rounded us up. We hadn't entered the base. They didn't charge us. They accused us exercising trespass laws on behalf of the owner of the property. Put us in a bus, which they brought along for the purpose, and took us back to our camp. But the peace pilgrims weren't to be deterred. They tried another time, and this time they didn't pause. And this time they wore um, space blankets (laughs) to uh, contain the infrared uh, emissions, which meant they sweated mightily inside these... (laughs) these rigs but they got there they got to the perimeter this time didn't wait outside the the fence got under the fence and climbed up on a ridge their intention was to um with pine gap in view the radar domes in the in in the middle of the night to perform a lament margaret pistorius was kind of one of the leaders of this she'd carried a viola on her back that night and climbed the ridge and was still panting when she got the viola out of the camp and began performing the lament. But the cops were on to them. What they thought was a, a ridge where there would be no vehicle access turned out to have a, a recently built road right along the top of it. They got right beside the road. So the police were on to them, rounded them, and, and Margaret didn't get to complete her lament until outside the courthouse. But it was a remarkable... You know, the charges were laid by the Australian Federal Police for trespassing on public land, and it's under the um, the amended act, the Terror Laws, Extra Severe Terror Laws Act, were thrown out by the judge who said hadn't, they hadn't followed proper process and they needed the, the um, assent of the Attorney General, they needed a signature from him to proceed with this legislation, and they haven't done that. And of course, Jim Dowling and Margaret's husband had done it all before. Yeah, yeah, they're keeping up the fine tradition here. In 2005, there were um, 
peace pilgrims. They didn't call themselves peace pilgrims then. They called themselves Christians Against All Terrorism. Donna Mulhern was part of it. Um, Tim Dowling was on both of those adventures. And Tim Dowling this year was there with his son Franz, and Franz was playing the guitar accompanist to um, Margaret. Anyway, so it was a great scene outside the courthouse in Alice Springs, um, and that's where the photograph was taken of Margaret in full passion playing her viola uh, under the, the banner of um, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, study war no more. They performed a and one of those um, supporting peace pilgrims did a solo journey, and he got to the inner fence, you know, went through the outer fence as a solo peace pilgrim, and got to the inner fence without getting protected, where he did his um, lament and then announced himself and quickly rounded up. And he, too, was taken to court at no charges. No, he didn't even get into the court. They didn't even proceed with um, laying any charges. That was poorly Christie from Cairns. Meanwhile, the disarm camp was a raging success, too. Uh, lots of people, there would have been 70, I counted 53 in the first circle, on the Monday night of the thing, people kept arriving, coming from all parts of Australia, and uh, they took on doing separate actions, and, and probably the most successful was the lockdown of the what they thought was the Raytheon, uh, local branch of Raytheon Corp, the huge profiteering arms merchant, It also happened to be the depot for the buses that carried the workers from Alice Springs out to Pine Gap. Yes, I think it's very important to focus on those contractors, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And they're easier targets than uh, the Pine Gap base itself. Anyway, they locked on four gates around this building. In Melbourne and elsewhere, a a lock-on is usually followed by the arrival of the police who contact the SES, and there's a procedure where they cut people off uh, and quickly open up the the base once they decide to do it. But uh, Alice Springs do it differently. They said the cops decided they wouldn't cut them off. They'd tell Raytheon to tell their workers that they weren't going to work that day, that the, the road and the, the base would be closed, and left the protesters on the gates. They stayed there for six hours, supervised by them, just two NT police, right? <laughs> this is extraordinary, pleasant, uh, because they had the, the protests certainly had its impact. It closed down Pine Gap for a day. They also tried blockading the um, the road, but of course the security had worked this one out and they had alternative access for the workers. But it certainly caused them some headaches and we certainly didn't go unnoticed. I saw a convoy of six buses, you know, we're talking about 50, 60 seated buses, going past with a police escort. That wasn't <laughs> usual activity. And that was happening because the disarmed people were so intent. Tell us about the Women's Tea Party. <laughs> I was just about to mention that. The Quakers' grannies continued the fine tradition established at, uh, in Rockhampton, recorded in David, David um, Bradbury's movie, or the 16-minute movie called Quaker Grannies, I think it is, went to the gates and set up a table. They went at 6 a.m. intent on you know blocking the gates for the, the, the shift change, sat down and offered the, um, the police at the gates uh, a cup of tea. Well, the police asked them to move. <laughs> they wouldn't. I mean, I've got to say, the Australian Federal Police was so gentle in the administration of the law here. They asked them to move, and when they wouldn't, they came. They just took the table away and moved it um, to the side of the road and invited the, 
the Quaker grannies to move their chairs to join the table. And the, the granny said, no, <laughs> they're going to stay with And the, um, the police more shrugged their shoulders in despair and then directed the traffic around them. <laughs> and Rather than making a big deal with the rest, they let them have... And when all the traffic was through the gates, they said, well... Uh, that's all for today, uh, all for this morning. You can stay here as long as you like. So the Quaker grannies were given the gate and their table, and they sat there for a while, and having done their business, and got lots of media. <laughs> it's also important to acknowledge that there were guests from overseas, from countries who also have US bases. These were the guests of the IPAN conference. They were from Professor Abe from Japan, Okinawa, and I forget the name of the woman from Guam. But uh, they have stories to warn Australians about the nature of US bases and how um, stuck they are and how they corrupt the government so the government is working for the base and not the people that have to live with the base. So it was good to hear those. You know, international solidarity is really important for building any movement of peace or any particular cause. So good to hear them. But I've got to say, although the, the IPAN conference was big in numbers, it was a difficult exercise for people trying to sit through it. It was in a long, narrow room, stuffy room, beautiful weather outside, you know, clear skies. And in, in a venue, you know, it was the Alice Springs Resort, which has a swimming pool just outside the, their large conference room. So, you know, all these yearning eyes looking at the swimming pool that's stuck inside. 17 different speakers. People were overwhelmed with facts and figures. It was like, full heavy-duty information processing for most people. And, you know, I, I think it's, this information is important, but it's all available on the web. You don't have to get have it talked at you. So, in fact, it was leaving people frustrated. Although it was a good thing to do, it wasn't as satisfying thing to do for people having travelled so far to sit in a, a darkened room in the middle of the desert. Also important, Graeme, to connect with the local people, the, the Indigenous people. Yes. Well, we had a great connection through Vince Forrester. Vince is a long-time um, Arunka activist, resident in Alice Springs. He's responsible, his work in, as an activist responsible for the establishment karma radio and things like that it goes back a long time he'd been the recent greens candidate so he came out and so vince um became our how can i say our representative uh, permitting elder it was on his authority for example that we were able to establish the tribal healing and unity camp in the lead up and also so the, probably the most successful event and this involves vince because vince helps us with the publicity I also want to go to acknowledge um, Chris Tomlins. Chris Tomlins had put out a statement, a call out by the Arunta to come to Pine Gap uh, and help them rid themselves of this menace, this death machine, causing mayhem from afar, death, murder from afar, uh, from their lands. So the probably the uniting event of the week of activities, there were two weeks of activities, intense activities, was the um, lamentation on Anzac Hill. Anzac Hill in Alice Springs is adjacent to the CBD and is a very popular lookout for visitors to the the town because you not only see the layout of the inner 
part of Alice Springs, which isn't a very big town, 28,000 people. And you can see the the ranges all around, the beautiful sunsets up there. And uh, Alice Springs during the Second World War was a major staging area for the defence of Darwin. Uh, the Arunta were actually moved out of the district and transported down to uh, Adelaide. And Antac Hill was effectively um, overlooking a vast army base. Uh, the RSL's, you know, just down the bottom of Anzac Hill. Was from, I think the RSL building itself was one of the original Second World War, probably an officer's mess or something like that. So it's become a, a well, well-established war memorial with lots of um, recent updates from the vast spending on military, you know, First World War commemorations, other wars. We occupied the hill on this Saturday night. This is a after the conference, we went up there for a lamentation for all the dead of all the wars, including the frontier wars. So Vince Forrester opened the lament with the smoking and then the story and the liturgy of um, the Arunta, what had happened in this country, in this particular, around Alice Springs, the massacres, what they called the dispersion. You know, first of all, it was the telegraph line coming in 1875, followed by the miners, then the pastoralists. But the pastoralists are the, the killing times, the rifle times, they call them up here, where they were dispersing the natives because they were objecting to the fact that cattle were destroying their water holes. And you, you know the story. But it was savage and unacknowledged. For example, the telegraph station, about 200 kilometres north of Alice, uh, the telegraph operator and his assistant were killed in a raid on the station, which was a result of trouble anyway that had happened to the workers. As you drive into the service station, this you pass the two gravestones. But where are the gravestones for the people that were killed in um, revenge? The revenge killing. We never hear about them. They're not even written into the story. It's just small footnotes that this happened. And the police officers at that time, people like Wilshire, the first constable, would make passing re- mentions in reports. He didn't even do it comprehensively. Just, oh, yeah, some 17 were killed. Right? <laughs> no names. Not even the precise number. No details about the killings. Just the thing that was happening at the time. So this lament, and then connecting that to the First World War, the current, so this, this military form, of a light horse running across the country, galloping across the country on a horse with a rifle, killing. This is what we send to the Sudan. This is what we send to the Boer War. It's what we send to Gallipoli. Light horse, trained and blooded, killing natives in Australia, sent off to kill natives in their native land overseas. That's the tradition of murder that we were lamenting on the hill. And um, Margaret Pistorius was the, the star of this with her viola, bringing us into music. A choir that formed the choir master for um, the Desert Song Festival was there, and he got us singing together. Donna Nobis, Give Us Peace. And um, a call and response that had been used for the Anzac Eve Peace Vigil uh, by Susanna Payne from the Centre of Christianity and Culture, who happened to be in town, was read, making an affirmation. We finished the ceremony with a um, personal dedication, putting a twig on the fire and making a commitment, personal commitment to peace.
this was deep, deeply moving for people. I saw people crying all around and deeply satisfying. It sort of rounded off all the action, all the information into a unifying foundation of lament. This is, but it seems to me that when people lament together, they certainly don't move easily into aggression. Rather, they, they reflect on how deep the need is for peace and how enduring are the tragedies and the traumas and what affects them. So you wouldn't want to do more of it once you reflect on the terrible things that happen. In a sense, Graham, the Peace Convergence was just a, the latest in a year of peace-related activities for you. You've been at it all year. Oh, all my life, I reckon. <laughs> well, yes, I'm a full-time peace activist in this time of perpetual war. I think I mean, it requires the best of our efforts and the most of our time, most deserving. And it's kind of empty at this time. Well, you know, 15 years of war, we say, you know, no end in sight and none even promised by our governments. What else can we do, folks? There will not be any international agreements on climate change until we have peace, until we establish the United Nations again as a peacekeeping force and rein in the rogue states of the USA and Israel. Couldn't agree with you more. I reckon everyone agrees with that. <laughs> but no one acts on No, it's a surprise. people act on it. It's surprising how many people don't include Israel in it. Yeah. Who's driving it? Who's, who's done more to under, undermine the authority of the UN than Israel? Right. Mm. Consistently ignoring its resolutions and proceeding with the building of the settlements on the West Bank. Exactly. Monsters. Where to now as you leave Alice Springs? I'm heading back to Sydney to see grandchildren. I don't really have another project, organising project, before me at this time. I'll, I'll be down at um, Ballarat for the 3rd of December, the, um, the annual Eureka Stockade commemoration. That's a general drift. But nothing, no big projects. So I'm, I'm in, um, you know, every movement begins and ends with stillness. So I'm in the kind of stillness mode after a big action, a lot of movement um, at this time. Okay, well, I'll let you get on with your peace and quiet. <laughs> Thanks very, Thank much. very much. Thank you, Thank Graham. You, Thank you, Jan. And that was veteran peace activist Graham Dunstan, and that interview was conducted just off the road on the highway outside Alice Springs as he left to travel back to Sydney in his peace bus. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
years of Radical Radio includes radical music. Music Matters continues this tradition every Friday by promoting and supporting live, independent Australian music. In November, Music Matters will be three years young and we'd love you to join us in celebrating our birthday and 40 years of 3CR with a fundraising event at Bella Union on the corner of Victoria and Ligon Streets, Carlton on Thursday, 3rd of November. On the night, you will hear a selection of exclusive 3CR Music Matters studio recordings. Live performances will include the debut of Raya Park, Kate Skinner as Rough River, and conclude with the total art music dance package that is Masco Sound System. Have a night out with your friends and the 3CR community. Lock in 3rd of November from 7pm when we'll see you upstairs in Trades Hall at Bella Union with, with your, your dancing, dancing shoes on. On 3CR, let's have some history now with author and historian Brian McKinlay. Today I'm going to look at two books which relate to some of the topics we've talked about uh, this year. Uh, I've looked essentially at especially at fascism, and I looked in several cases at Italy and at Mussolini. Today I'm going to review two books which look at uh, an institution which was extant and and still exists in Italy, and that's the the Vatican and the central organisations of the Catholic Church. Uh, The coming to power in Italy of Mussolini represented the beginning of European fascism, and it presented to the Vatican a a special problem. And the books I'm going to look at today in this sort of review program are Hitler's Pope by John Cornwall and another book I've come across recently called The Entity, E-N-T-I-T-Y, The Entity. Now, John Cornwall, who wrote Hitler's Pope, and the book I would think is still around in the bookshops, you may pick it up somewhere secondhand, Uh, it was a bestseller and libraries often have it, Uh, so it's worth looking at. Now, Cornwall is uh, quite free of any suspicion that he's anti-Catholic because he is the editor, or was until his recent retirement, of a British Catholic weekly called The Tablet, a very liberal and interesting magazine, by the way. Cornwall is is British, of course, and um, he obtained the consent of the Vatican to have access to its vast archives, as you could imagine, on looking at Pope Pius XII, who was Pope during the whole of the Second World War, having come to power as Pope literally months before the outbreak of the Second World War. And Cornwall uh, has done a book looking at the Pope and his relations to Nazism, Pope Pius lived on into the 1950s when he was succeeded by John Paul, who was a very liberal and uh, and very open and reform-minded pope, much admired around the world, and had a short reign because he was an elderly man when he came to power. But Pius XII was there for about 20 years. The second book is by an Italian historian called Frattini, and it's called The Entity, which is the proper name for the Vatican Secret Service. Now, it might surprise you to find that the Vatican has a secret service, but uh, Frattini, who, by the way, has written books on in Italian, and this book is in translation, he's written books on the Mafia and the CIA, which you would think would put him in a good light to write a book about another secret service organisation and, of course, the Mafia criminal organisation. 
What he does, he goes back and looks at the fact that the Vatican, at the time of the wars of religion in Europe in the 16th century, set up a secret service of a kind. And this is not uncommon. All the governments of Europe from that time right down to modern times and Australia and Britain and Russia all have secret services and indeed in Australia, from what we know, ASIO have a budget running to billions. So spying is a growth industry and it always has been. Back in the um, Middle Ages, there was a case where the government of Venice... Now, Venice was a city-state and a bit like modern Singapore, rich, prosperous, but tiny, uh, with its own special interest in trade around the Mediterranean. And one of the popes of the time was suspected, and in fact was, murdered, uh, poisoned by the Venetian Secret Service because he was following policies that... uh, damaged Venice and when his successor another pope said to the leader of Venice called the Doge of Venice I thought you Venetians were good Catholics how could this have happened we said we're good Catholics but we're Venetian first and that summed up Venice's extensive secret service operations and in fact the Venetians had a couple of agents, not one but two placed in London in the hall in the court of Henry VIII and as Henry VIII after the collapse of his first marriage moved into a conflict with the Catholic Church that would see the Church of England created the Venetians through their spies in London knew more about what Henry was up to than the Pope himself in Rome So these two books look at the Vatican and uh, it's uh, Pope Pius XII that I'll look at in particular. Now, Pius was uh, a typical bureaucrat. He was a priest, a bishop. He spent his whole lifetime working in the uh, bureaucracy of Rome in the Vatican under Pius XI, his successor, who was there for quite a long period too. Now, Pius XII was a very conservative man, like all of his generation, uh, very worried about communism and the Russian Revolution, and a stickler for the Catholic Church's laws and regulations. The word reform never entered his head. He also had the virtue of speaking German, and that meant that in the 1930s, he was appointed by the Pope of the time. His name, by the way, was Pacelli, and perhaps I'll call him that. Pacelli... Father Pacelli, as he was, was sent off to Berlin to keep an eye, he was ambassador really, uh, to keep an eye on developments in Germany because by the early 30s, though, Germany's economy was in ruins. And Hitler and his supporters, who, as I said, had been seen as a team of loonies and extremists in the mould of people like Trump or Hansen, suddenly was a major political force. The only thing that could have stopped him coming to power was a combination of the major political parties outside the Nazi movement. Now, they were the Communists and the Socialists and a large party called the Catholic Centre Party. Now, the Vatican had always looked on the Catholic Centre Party in Germany, a major party, and, and by the way, a parent of the present German Christian Democratic Party, of which Angela Merkel is uh, Chancellor. The Christian Democrats in Germany uh, were inclined to join a coalition with the Socialists. 
which would have been supported in the Reichstag by the communists who had a large membership and this would have kept Hitler from power in 1933 but Pacelli, the that he would become, was bitterly opposed to this and persuaded the German Centre Party not to join in an anti-Nazi coalition. For this the Nazis looked on him favourably as you'll see in the book Hitler's Pope and they made all sorts of promises about how the Catholic Church would be treated favourably under a Nazi government. Of course, this didn't eventuate. Yes, Pacelli stopped a coalition that would have stopped the Nazis coming to power, for which he must be condemned in the most trenchant terms. But when the Nazis came to power, they, and particularly Hitler, who had been brought up as a Catholic, had no time at all for the Catholic Church. And so it gained nothing from its appeasement of Hitler. So as the book The Entity, uh, looking at the secret espionage of the Vatican shows, the Vatican wasn't always particularly successful. Now Hitler came to power and Mussolini was already in power in Italy and in 1939 Pius XI died and the conclave of cardinals met to choose the new Pope and they chose Pacelli who became Pope Pius XII. There were even more pro-fascist cardinals among the conclave by the way. Uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan, an Italian of course, uh, was a great friend of Mussolini's. So when Pius XII became Pope, World War II was only months away. Uh, for various reasons, he uh, was loath to make any statements about the war and kept a kind of neutral position. Even after the Nazi attack on Poland, an overwhelmingly Catholic country where the Polish leaders and bishops and others begged the Vatican to speak out on their behalf, he didn't. He maintained a silence about the terrible events that would unfold in Poland. In 1941, the Nazis attacked Yugoslavia, which broke up, of course, as it has today, into states like Serbia and Croatia. And the Croatians, an overwhelmingly Catholic people, uh, were led by a fascist movement called Eustatia. Now, we know about Eustatia from Australian politics in more recent times, when the Whitlam government, if you remember, Senator Lionel Murphy, the Attorney General, raided offices in Australia of Eustatia amongst the Croatian community. And Eustatia's long fascist history was exemplified by the terrible events in Croatia under the Nazi occupation. It was said that even the Nazis were shocked by the violent crimes of Eustatia and the Croatian fascists against the people in Croatia, like communists and socialists, liberals, and orthodox Christians. Eustatia hated, as we have seen in recent times, clashes between Catholic and Muslim and orthodox Christians, some terrible events, uh, like the massacres at Srebrenica, where orthodox Christians were massacred and Muslims were massacred by Croatian groups. The Vatican responded to all this in a curious way. There were constant contacts between the Croatian Catholic Eustatia and people in the Vatican. And in 1944 and 45, 
when Italy was invaded by the Allies and Mussolini was overthrown, of course, the uh, contacts between the Croatian fascists and the Vatican uh, centred on a college, a training college in Rome run for the training of priests by the Croatian clergy. Uh, it was called the Croatian College. Now, many of the clergy and some of the bishops in this college were fascists and were linked to events in Croatia, which, of course, were coming to a, a catastrophic climax as the Nazis retreated from Eastern Europe uh, to be replaced by the Russian army, which very soon made short work of the Croatian fascist movement, many of whom fled and through the Croatian College in Rome, uh, which set up an organisation which was called the Ratline. Funny name. But the Ratline became a, a scape route by which some of these Croatian fascists, some very prominent ones indeed, made their way across Europe as the war was ending in all the confusion of refugees, millions of refugees everywhere. This was quite easy. They made their way to Rome, where with the knowledge or not, we don't know, of Pius Twelfth, the Croatian college in Rome uh, arranged everything, fake passports, money, other things, to smuggle these people out of Italy uh, to Spain and Portugal from where they could take ship to South America. Uh, many of them went to Argentina, giving rise to that old story about Hitler having found his way to Argentina. In fact, the Peron government, Peron, the husband and president of Evita Peron, made a lot of money out of getting money from these fascist groups in Europe, and notably the Croatian College in Rome, and using the rat lines to smuggle Nazi war criminals, especially Croatian ones, to South America. Later on, some of them were caught, of course, tracked down. The Israelis tracked down Eichmann famously, and half a dozen other major, mostly Croatian war criminals, were tracked down to South America, and in a number of cases, a famous case of one the French tracked down and got kidnapped and took back to trial in France. All of this happened under the uh, pontificate of Pius Twelfth, and uh, all of it was to the detriment of democratic organisations in Europe and of the of tracking down these Croatian war criminals. Oddly enough, Tito, the communist leader of Yugoslavia post-war, who reigned for about 30 years or more, <clears throat> and who created modern Yugoslavia, which hardly outlived him, of course, by after his death, it broke up into all the corresponding parts that are there today, Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia and Macedonia, five small countries which have emerged from the ruins of Yugoslavia, which no longer exists, of course. Tito, oddly enough, was a Croatian himself, but he had been a communist. As a young man, he'd gone and fought in the Spanish Civil War, came back secretly to Croatia during the Nazi occupation, wasn't picked up by the Nazis or the, or the Ustasha, and eventually led the communist movement. In Yugoslavia, there were two movements against the Nazis. One of them 
a right-wing movement which wanted to restore the old royal family and bring back the old pre-war Yugoslavia, and Tito, who wanted, of course, a communist state. And oddly enough, Tito was a Croatian. Uh, oddly enough, in the early years after the Second World War, in 1949, Tito was the only communist leader in Eastern Europe who was able to have a battle with Stalin and survive. In other European countries, like Czechoslovakia, for instance, in the 40s, the communist leaders thought they could disagree with Stalin and with Moscow and met a rude ending when they were found guilty of all sorts of crimes, tried and executed by Stalin's henchmen. Tito avoided that. He avoided even going to Moscow to see Stalin at the height of their quarrels, wisely, of course. He may never have returned. Uh, and Tito broke with Moscow in a famous conflict and turned to the West for economic help and for military help and became the first communist leader to break with Moscow. For the rest of his life, Yugoslavia became something of a model of a communist state in Eastern Europe that uh, was independent of the Soviet Union and in fact often, <coughs> at least in verbal terms, in conflict with the Soviet Union. So from these remarkable events in Croatia, in which the Vatican was involved in its early part, came later Yugoslavia under Tito. One last thing. Uh, Entity looks at some remarkable event that I didn't know. When the Germans invaded Russia in June 1941 and almost captured Moscow and encircled St. Petersburg and captured much of European Russia, the Vatican had the idea, amazingly, that the collapse of the Soviet Union, which they thought was here, was nigh, could be followed by planting, as it were, Catholic communities inside the ruins of Russia. Now, the Russian Orthodox Church had always been in conflict with the Vatican for centuries. And under Stalin and then under the Nazis, the Russian Orthodox Church was seen as a symbol of Russia and was bitterly persecuted by both Stalin and, and the Nazis. And that gave the Vatican the idea that it might be able to infiltrate into German-occupied Russia, and did so. And under Pius's uh, ruling, about 250 priests were sent off by various routes, and without the Nazis actually knowing much about it, into Nazi-occupied Russia, where they attempted to establish Catholic communities which had once been Orthodox. Well, this was a disaster, because within a couple of years, the Russians drove back and recaptured all of these areas that the Nazis had occupied and liberated most of Russia from Nazi occupation. And, of course, about 250 of these priests were rounded up by the Soviet forces and executed, pretty rightly so, as they had worked in combination with the occupying Nazi forces. So I suggest that uh, you'll find, uh, readers will find, uh, these two books looking at the Vatican. Hitler's Pope was a bestseller uh, by John Cornwall and is probably in most good libraries if you can't track down a copy. And certainly 
uh, I recently, I'd lost my copy and recently bought a second-hand copy from a second-hand bookshop. The entity, which is published in Italian, translated into English, was also published five or six years ago, is probably harder to get. Uh, it wasn't in this country, uh, or anywhere, I think, a bestseller, but it's in paperback by a British publisher, and it should be trackable, if that's the word, uh, into good bookshops, good second-hand bookshops, and you may find some libraries have it. Both books are paperbacks, Hitler's Pope and The Entity, and I'd recommend both of them to you. And that's some um, historian author Brian McKinlay, and I actually did manage to get Hitler's Pope book from the City of Darabin Library a number of years ago. I haven't tried Entity, but it is available, so it's worth a try. And apologies for not quite perfect phone line from our friends Telstra there, but I'm sure that you got the gist of all that was going on and it was a really strange phone call because it went good and then it went not so good and then it got better again and anyway, it was good. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That stands for reuse, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. If you've been a consumer of mainstream media in the past weeks, you would have noticed lots about the deeds of Syria and its allies in murdering their own people in eastern Aleppo. But if you've been a consumer of media from alternative sources, you would have an entirely different perspective on the conflict in Syria. And that difference is what Dr Tim Anderson from Hands Off Syria has been explaining over the past years of the conflict. Tim, you have pointed out that although you've been to Syria a number of times in recent years, has written a recent book on the subject entitled The Dirty War in Syria, Washington Regime Change and Resistance. Your assessment of the situation has not been sought by any Western media outlet. Is there a chink in that armour? You've been approached by the ABC recently. There seems to be a little one. I mean, someone interviewed me about two weeks back and then there's another request at the moment. Whenever things change in a material sense in the the conflict and there's a bit of an unknown, this has happened a few times in the past, a little chink does appear where they sort of look for something different because their, their story doesn't really answer everything, you know, like the involvement of Russia. Whenever the US is very strongly linked to Al Qaeda, for example, you know, uh, and it can't be hidden, then occasionally there's that little window, I suppose. I think that, you know, there's a genuine curiosity. They are puzzled. They don't quite understand it. Uh, like I say, when there's a very strong link between the Al-Qaeda groups and the US, which has always been there, but it's hidden most of the time. But sometimes it comes out, particularly over the US-Russia role, I suppose. There was, I remember also some years ago, when the US was about to escalate things, then they get a little bit concerned. And, of course, there's now this debate in the US itself, which, unfortunately, the Australian media is always very subservient to the discussions going on in the US. But because there's the Trump-Clinton discussion going on, then that raises a bit of confusion, I suppose. The fact that Donald Trump, whatever you think of him, has been talking about having good relationships with Russia and 
uh, acknowledging that the Syrian army is the main force fighting ISIS with the help of Iran and, and Russia, and that's very unpalatable to the, the humanitarian war people in the US, um, most prominently Hillary Clinton. It seems to be getting up the nose of John Kerry too, doesn't it? The fact that he's saying we're going to have war crime charges against Syria and Russia. Yes, well, they've been talking about that for the last five years. You know, it's just really part of the way of trying to reinforce their moral high ground. I, I don't know really how anyone sees they have any moral high ground in things, but that's part of the sort of moral argument, basically, to try and build up a, a just cause by which they can at least bluster about these sorts of things, because it's been very clear that the US has never wanted to get deeply involved in, in Syria. They're much happier to have used these proxy armies. But is it a fact that Aleppo is falling to the, the Syrian people, that um, Kerry's getting a bit more upset at the moment? I think it's a sham on the part of Kerry, really. You know, the, that sort of anger is a sham because Kerry knows very well what's going on on the ground. He knows very well that the US is running out of options, really. It, it's blustering about coming in and using a military option. They, they don't want escalation with Russia. They didn't want escalation before. So I don't think much has changed, but they are running out of options, and that's why you see some other things happening, like the British government also talking about military intervention against Russia and cutting off all the bank accounts to Russian television in Britain, those sorts of things, more economic measures. And what is actually happening in Aleppo that you've been able to find out in eastern Aleppo? Well, in Aleppo, first of all, eastern Aleppo is part of Aleppo. Most of the people in Aleppo live in western Aleppo, and increasingly more... What's happened is that there's the Syrian army and their allies have had, which includes a lot of regional forces, um, recruited by Iran and, of course, Hezbollah and Russia in the sky. But they've been very careful, contrary to the Western media reports, about using air power in any populated area. But they've gradually been closing that noose, basically, around East Aleppo, which is quite a large area, but in which you've got a very a shrinking number of people living there. Unfortunately, what's happened in the last two weeks is that the, the seven humanitarian corridors out of there have been mined and blocked off by the al-Qaeda groups who say that they refuse any aid. They've gone and made some types of public demonstrations amongst themselves and some of their supporters to say they don't want any aid. And at the same time, they, you know, they accuse the Syrian government and the Russians of barrel bombing and so on, killing civilians. And they keep showing the videos of themselves. I mean, these are the same al-Qaeda people with the white helmet jackets and sometimes helmets on, carrying children in their arms as though their, their main purpose in life is rescuing children. That siege is going on. The al-Qaeda groups have reinforced that siege. Um, they've shot several dozen people who've tried to escape, so there's a great intimidation on the remaining population. It's not clear what the numbers were. It was 200,000. It's much less than that now. But it would be tens of thousands of people still in there um, compared to the one and a half million in the western part of Aleppo. So that's the standoff at the moment. There have been some reports that as many as 2,000 of the jihadists have, are prepared to surrender because that's been offered to them for some time. The UN representative there, the Secretary-General's representative, has offered to escort them out. And this includes al-Qaeda people to Idlib where the Syrian government has more or less been deporting these groups of jihadists who've surrendered so later on they'll deal with their presence in Idlib but it's a way of getting them out of the populated areas because there have been some other areas of Syria there's been fighting going on sorry in the south and in some of the countryside areas in Damascus and they've been 
effectively deporting a lot of those jihadists to, to Idlib, to the, the northern province of Syria next to Turkey. The hypocrisy of the of the West and the, the mainstream media of um, the the way that they're approaching the battle for Mosul and the, the so-called battle for Aleppo, where they're sort of welcoming the Iraqi Kurdish forces who are bombing the city, and yet if it's happening in Aleppo, in eastern Aleppo, we'll we'll charge them with war crimes. Yes, I mean that Mosul operation involves a lot of parties, including Iran, as well as the US, but there's a lot of discontent in Iraq about the involvement of the US because many of the Iraqi political and military leaders have believed for some years now that the US is uh, working directly with ISIS and helping them strategically, helping them get out. At the moment, the reports are that a lot of the commanders, people in ISIS and at the strategic level, have moved across to Raqqa or Deir Ezzur to the parts in, or Raqqa is their effective self-proclaimed capital in eastern Syria. The operation on Mosul is a huge operation. It's about to start. I think the biggest um, parallel there really is um, Fallujah because Fallujah, 12 years ago in Iraq, experienced two scorched earth type attacks basically there. Effectively, they told everyone to get out and then they, they, they plastered it. That has never happened in Syria despite all the destruction of the buildings. They've never gone into the jihadist occupied areas and some of them have been occupied for up to four years now. They've never gone in and done a scorched earth just, just destroying the entire area as the US did in Fallujah, for example. And many Syrians wonder why not. In some cases, this, the town of Douma, for example, to the northeast of Damascus has been occupied for four years. That parts of eastern Aleppo, they've never been carpet bombed in the way that the US did in Vietnam and, and Iraq. And you, Secretary General of the UN, you've been very critical of the UN in the past. Would he make any difference, Guterres? I suppose there's always hope when there's a new person there, but the problem is that, um, and the last one, Ban Ki-moon, was really one of the worst they've ever had, I think, because he was an old Cold War character who was really overtly pro-US. So the new one, former Portuguese uh, Prime Minister, he's experienced, but it's really the big power politics at the UN that decides those sorts of things, isn't it? You know, So you've got this standoff in the Security Council, I think, Russia, ha Russia has a lot of support from most of the countries at the UN these days, but it seems that at the level of the executive, Britain and the US and France, uh, three of the permanent members and three of the most aggressive against Syria involved in this long, drawn-out, failed attempt at regime change, they still have a lot of influence in the UN executive. And how does the increasing cooperation between Russia and Turkey impact on the situation in Syria? Well, broadly speaking, it's good and it's welcomed by the Syrian government, um, even though Mr Erdogan is clearly their enemy, because Russia and Turkey, for their own reasons, have good strategic reasons to have a, have a better relationship. It's to do with uh, energy, it's to do with including nuclear energy as well as gas pipelines. It's Turkey is really you know, alienated from Europe in, in many respects and uh, Russia's another option for them, another important strategic partner. To some extent, you know, of course, President Putin is, is biting his tongue as he does this sort of business. You couldn't say it's a warm relationship, but it's an important political strategic relationship. The Syrians, for their part, think that if this helps rein in uh, Mr Erdogan, if it helps them, even to a limited extent, it, it's a good thing. But it's, it's certainly Turkey is extremely important for ending this conflict because most of the aggravation these days 
directly is coming from the fact that you have that 800-kilometer border that Turkey has with Syria, and that's where the jihadists and their weapons keep coming from, including the recent anti-aircraft weapons that they've got. How important is the Israeli control of the Golan Heights? That's extremely important on the south side there because Israel has been strategically important in supplying, in hospitalising, in providing weapons covertly. They're openly hospitalising all of the jihadist groups, including al-Nusra and ISIS, uh, and covertly supplying weapons to them. It's been exposed on a number of occasions. There's a command centre, I believe, in Jordan, which which, uh, led some recent offensives, but because of the strength of the Syrian alliance now, they've been able to fight uh, a multi-front war. We haven't heard so much about it because of all the, the focus on Aleppo, but there is still a lot of serious conflict in around Dara and Kenetra, uh, which is near the, the Golan Heights there, the occupied part of Syria that, that Israel is in. And with the finding of some new reserves of gas down there, it's just focused attention, I suppose, on strategically the importance of that region. Um, the Syrians, for their part, have said that they uh, have reinforced their claim to take back the Golan Heights, but they're certainly not going to try an operation against Israel in the current circumstances until they resolve the question in Aleppo and possibly other parts of the country. We've talked many times about the wars against the people of Libya, Iraq, and now Syria, and you could say Somalia and lots of other places as well. Tiny Yemen, one of the poorest countries in the Arab world, is there a connection or is that a Saudi thing? No, it, there's definitely a connection. and We have to start with Afghanistan, don't we? Afghanistan. Sorry, I missed was, that one out. There's so many of them, it's easy to miss them out. And the other one is um, Israel's attack on South Lebanon in 2006. That was really the green light after Condoleezza Rice made those statements about reshaping a new Middle East and the creative destruction out of which a new Middle East, you know, uh, which is basically one under the umbrella of the US and Israel would, would come about. So there's been a 15-year-long war. It's actually almost exactly 15 years now, isn't it, since the invasion of Afghanistan in October 2011. They're deeply connected. We were told that they were connected. It's emerged on a number of occasions that this was reshaping the entire region, country by country. Wesley Clark said the Pentagon told him there was going to be seven countries in five years. Well, they're slow on their schedule there, and they haven't done it. In fact, they've failed strategically. You have to think Afghanistan, Iraq... South Lebanon, Libya, Syria and the African, the North African countries you mentioned also. Finally, Tim, for people who want a, a different perspective on the war, you've spoken before about a couple of um, news agencies in that area of the world. Perhaps I could ask you if you could outline those a bit more. And I was speaking to a friend the other day who watched SBS China. There's not a white helmet in sight. There's not a child in sight being dragged out of a bomb building. Yeah, that's true. There are not many good options in terms of the the corporate media in Western circles during a war. During a war, they all seem to be incredibly sensorial and and closely tied to the the aims of their government. So China is a bit more neutral, the the Chinese sources, but they do adopt a lot of the Western Western wire services, basically. I really think you have to go for day-to-day purposes to the the good quality media from Iran and Russia uh, and Syria itself. You know, people try and disqualify that entire thing. Someone said the other day on social media, someone who should know better, said, oh, but they're all biased sources. They're Iranian, Russian, Syrian. Actually, you, know, you can't disqualify entire countries like that. People who have an interest who have much more detailed information 
you know, that there are good sources. You have to look for corroboration of things that seem a bit strange, and there are biased sources amongst the Iranian media, but the Iranian media is probably one of the best in the Middle East, the most detailed, most comprehensive. There are some alternative sources in the West, like 21st Century Wire and Off Guardian and some of those sorts of sources, but really, in terms of mass media, and we can include Telesur, the Latin American station based in Ecuador and Venezuela, there are some good international sources um, that you can get day-to-day information from. You really have to get away from those West, particularly the Western liberal ones, I would say, the, the UK Guardian, the New York Times, those sorts of, Al Jazeera, those ones are clearly deeply committed to this idea of a humanitarian war. And how's your book going in different countries around the world? It's going very well in, in Germany at the moment. The Arabic one is going well. There's some new European language versions being done now in Bosnian and Italian, for example. So I'm spending a little time talking to the Europeans about this because the Europeans are really quite important in the whole equation um, because of their role, the fact that they're getting backlash, the fact that they're involved still in economic sanctions. So it's interesting to me to see the different debates in in different European languages. How difficult or how easy it is to find those good sites in Iran, Russia and Syria? How, How do people go about it? In the back of my book, there's the websites mentioned, but for example, if you want discussion press tv has a lot of discussion about the elements of the the war in the whole region if you want day-to-day military information fast news uh, fna uh, which is linked to the the iranian military that has very good day-to-day reports there and of course the syrian one which is not very well advertised sana s-a-n-a and the russian one sputnik rt occasionally has stories but so there are a range of uh, there are a range of sites like that but I, i have listed them in the back of my book by the book. (laughs) Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. And that was Dr. Tim Anderson speaking about the situation in Syria, but also in other places as well. And the book is called The Dirty War in Syria, Washington, Regime Change and Resistance by Dr. Tim Anderson. Yarra Art Spaces is a free event hosted by the University of the Third Age Yarra City in partnership with Yarra City Libraries. Ever wondered how arts precincts foster a lively arts community? Or what the role of innovative curators is? Come along to hear discussions on these ideas and more with local curators Marielle Sonny, Anne Virgo, Susan Gibson, Ness Alexander and Marcus Westbury. It's the day after local council elections. What better way to spend your Sunday afternoon than in the cosy Fitzroy Town Hall reading room contemplating Yarra Art Spaces. Sunday the 23rd of October, 3 to 4.30pm. Doors open at 2.30 for refreshments. Please RSVP by calling 1300 695 427. That's 1300 695 427. Or go to yarracity.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries. The U3A Yarra City is a 3CR supporter. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. 
they have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Earlier this month, Israeli gunboats intercepted and boarded the Zituna Olive, the women's boat to Gaza, an initiative of the International Freedom Flotilla Coalition. In international waters, 35 nautical miles from the Gaza coast. The ship and its three crew and women activists were taken to the Israeli port of Ashdod, arrested and deported to countries around the world, which included USA, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Ireland, Malaysia, Spain, Algeria, Sweden. In all, women from 19 countries sailed the various legs of the voyage from Barcelona in Spain. One of those on the ship for the last leg was Anne Wright, a retired U.S. Army colonel and retired U.S. State Department official who resigned the day before the onset of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Since then, Anne has been active in the anti-war movement and in 2009 began working as a leading member of the steering committee for the Gaza Freedom March. In 2010, she was on the Challenger 1 and observed Israeli soldiers rampling down from helicopters onto the deck of the Mavi Mara and witnessed the murder of nine innocent civilians. I spoke with Anne soon after her return to the US from Israel and asked her first about the preparations for this long voyage. Yes, it was. The preparations began uh, well over a year ago when we started talking about having a women's boat to Gaza. Through a course of a year trying to do fundraising with eight different national and organizational campaigns to get enough money to actually purchase one boat and then at the last minute a second boat. We had purchased them in Spain, so that meant that in order to get the boats from Spain to uh, off Gaza, uh, it was a long trip. It was 1,715 miles that we needed to take those boats. And the preparations in terms of finding crew, captains and crew, to get the uh, boats in working order or better working order. They were, they were in working order when we bought them, but each one of them needed some time to repair. So the preparations were long, and uh, not all of them worked, quite honestly. Uh, one of the boats that we had spent a lot of time, the first boat that we bought, that we called the Amal, or Hope, that our captain, who was a or is an Australian citizen. She lives in Tasmania. Her name is uh, Madeline Habib, very, very experienced captain of very large ships who kindly volunteered to be the captain of one of our boats. She spent uh, two and a half weeks working on that boat, and when we finally sent it on its way, it didn't even get out of Barcelona Harbor before the engine had a catastrophic failure. So we had to restart the process using the second boat that we had 
and moving our primary participants onto uh, that boat, which we call the Zaituna Olivia, which is like uh, the olive or the the great cultural symbol of the Middle East, the olive tree. How many women originally applied to be part of the voyage? I was a part of the organizing team. I was uh, with the U.S. campaign uh, that was raising money on behalf of the U.S. group, and I was on the International Steering Committee, as I had been for the last four flotillas. So I ended up being designated as one of the boat leaders, which was kind of a different category than our actual participants, who we had asked each national campaign to nominate one or two people to go into a pool of, of persons uh, that we ultimately would pick to go on various parts of the voyage. The voyage was actually broken down into three parts. The first part was from Barcelona, Spain, to uh, Giacchio, Corsica, France. That was a two-and-a-half, almost three-day sail. And then the second part was from uh, Giacchio, Corsica, on to Messina, Sicily. That was a -a three-and-a-half-day trip. And then the last one was from Messina, Sicily, Italy, on down to Gaza, or as close to Gaza as we could get before the Israeli defense forces or offense forces, their oppression forces, before they stopped us. So there were three different sets of women that were on the boat. It turned out we just had one boat, even though we procured a second one down in Sicily, but for a variety of reasons to include not the captain that we had hoped that could sail that was very uneasy with the boat in that uh, she had not had enough time really to prepare to be familiar with the boat, and she rightfully said that she didn't feel uh, that she should go ahead and take that boat without more preparation. So while we wished we could have had a second boat heading on toward Gaza because of the circumstances that we had actually put her in, she, as a professional sailor, made the right call to say there wasn't enough time really to prepare properly for that. And how many women from different countries were actually on that last leg of the trip, and where were they from? The last leg of the trip we had, and on each leg of the trip, we had 13 women. There were three crew members, uh, again, Madeline Habib, uh, captain from Australia, and then two other crew members, Emma from Sweden and uh, Sophia from Norway. And then we had a medical doctor that was with us on all three legs. She was from Malaysia. I was there as a boat leader. And then we had, so that makes five. So we had eight other positions to make a total of 13. And on the last leg of it, we had a member of parliament from Algeria, a member of parliament from New Zealand, uh, what they call a first substitute member of parliament from Sweden, former Olympic athlete and student activist from South Africa. Uh, We had a professional photographer and journalist who has produced a beautiful book on uh, Gaza before 1948, 
Uh, we had a Nobel Peace Laureate, Marie McGuire from Northern Ireland, uh, and we had uh, two journalists from Al Jazeera. I believe that makes eight. So those were the, uh, the people that were on the last leg of the journey. We were on the boat for nine days through some very rough water in the very beginning where everyone, you know, there's nothing like being seasick to make an equalizer out of, <laughs> out of a voyage. And we all uh, had various degrees of uh, seasickness. I, I'd been on three, that was the third leg, so I'd already been pretty seasick already and didn't get so sick on that voyage. But for those that were the big, this was the first part of the, of the voyage, they suffered quite a bit. But by the time four days were over, they had all perked up, and the last four days were very nice with everyone feeling pretty good and uh, being able to participate fully in, in the life on the boat. How did you train for the voyage and also to be prepared in case or on the eventuality of the Israeli army or commandos boarding the ship? Well, while we were in Messina, Sicily, we underwent uh, some nonviolence training that was given by a very uh, professional trainer who's done international training before. Her name is Lisa Fithian, and she's from the United States, but she's done nonviolence training uh, all around the world and on a variety of political uh, social justice issues. And we had a long discussion of what the potential was for a confrontation with the Israeli forces, what our fears were, and then trying to address what our fears would be. Uh, I, as a former military, a retired U.S. military person with 29 years in the U.S. military, my contribution was, uh, let's just remember that these are very young people in general, that people that we would be meeting uh, would be 19, 20, 21 years old, young people with military training and with weapons, and that combination can be uh, a dangerous combination, depending on the leadership of the, of the group and what they've been told about us. We had been very clear in uh, uh, all of our medium work uh, to make sure that we focused on the fact that we were a group of women, of uh, unarmed civilian women who were going to be nonviolent in our approach to anything that happened on the trip. And uh, looking at the bios of all of the women, it was very easy to see that the individual women were not going to be confrontational in their approach. But even though that was apparent from the materials we put out, you never can tell what uh, the military leadership of the IDF was going to do. And we know in 2010 in that flotilla, the leadership of the Israeli military uh, apparently gave the green light to go ahead and, and actually execute nine people on the Marvi Marmara ship. And subsequently, another person died from wounds that were inflicted on him, and another 50 people were wounded by gunfire by the IDF in a total misreading of who the people were that were on the six ships. So you never can tell for sure, although 
one would have hoped that with a small boat of only 13 people, all women, that uh, uh, the IDF was going to analyze it uh, in a different manner than what they had done in the earlier flotillas. And, in fact, that's what happened. Uh, when we were actually boarded, stopped and boarded by the IDF on August 5th at about 4 in the afternoon, the people that boarded the, the uh, Zaituna, uh, half of them were women, young women in the, in the Israeli Navy, and they were not dressed in combat military uniforms. They did not carry weapons. They had baseball caps on rather than combat helmets, and it was a totally different approach. So in that manner, uh, you could see that the Israeli forces had done an, an analysis of who we were and had determined that, uh, that they did not perceive that we were a, a lethal threat to them. So they modified their tactics in, uh, in their approach to us. Where were you when you were boarded on the sea? How far off the coast? Uh, yes, we were 34.2 miles off the coast of Gaza when we were boarded in international waters and uh, 14 miles from the self-declared Israeli security zone that uh, they have put on Gaza and claiming that it's an internationally recognized security zone that uh, one should not enter. But... Uh, we were in international waters and were uh, taken against our will from the course we were on and taken to the Israeli port of Ashdod, where we were charged with entering Israel illegally and then uh, ultimately deported from Israel, a 10-year deportation, which means that we cannot go into the West Bank really? through Israel. It's the second deportation I've had, so I, I have a total of 20 years. Six of them have already gone on one of them, so I guess now I have 14 more years before I'll be able to go into Israel. Although, from what I've heard, no one who's ever been deported once has ever been allowed back in. So going on these missions is, well... For those of us that are you know, really working on the issue of Palestinian solidarity, uh, it is important that we, we travel to places like the West Bank and Gaza to see with our own eyes what the effects of the Israeli occupation and is on, uh, on both uh, areas. The naval blockade and land blockade on Gaza, to actually go in there as I have seven different times, it, it is important as we do our writing and, and uh, public speaking about the plight of Palestinians. So in that manner, I wish that I still could go into West Bank because it's important to go there yourself. But I have chosen by participating in these flotillas that that would be one thing that I will, I've eliminated myself from. You purposely didn't take any aid with you because in the past it's been intercepted and confiscated. Is that correct? Well, yes, we had just a 50-foot boat, and the purpose of our mission was not humanitarian aid. It was to bring a message of hope to the people of Gaza uh, that the international community had not forgotten, that 
Indeed, we were failing to bring international attention to the fact that the Israeli blockade is still in effect and is still detrimentally affecting the daily lives of people, of the 1.9 million people who live in Gaza, this tiny little enclave that's 25 miles long and 5 miles wide. The point of the the mission was to bring international attention to a brutal Israeli blockade of Gaza, and I think we did that. There There were a lot of newspaper articles and radio interviews and TV interviews that were done by the participants on the flotilla, and I think we did remind the international community in many ways that the people of Gaza are living under just a horrific Israeli blockade, which means that electricity, water, food, materials are all controlled by the Israeli military. And uh, it was very apparent as we uh, were, after we had been boarded on four in the afternoon on October 5th, and as the IDF directed us toward uh, the port of Ashdod, as it took eight hours to get actually to this Israeli port because our boat would only go five miles an hour. So it was about 40 miles on the diagonal to get there. But as the sun set and as we looked toward the coastline, as we got closer and closer, the perpetual darkness that is Gaza now was very apparent because we could see all of the brilliant lights of the coastline of Israel to the north and then to the south was darkness. And that was Gaza because of the lack of electricity that uh, the Israelis allow into into Gaza, which affects every aspect of their life from how much electricity you have for a refrigerator to light to study by, light to have any sort of business thing. So it was very apparent as we were coming to that shore, even though we did not touch the shore of Gaza, we could certainly see the effects of the Israeli blockade on Gaza. Can you explain how you and your friends felt when you travelled for nine days and nights, you were so close yet so far away, and you knew Palestinians were waiting for you on the shore to greet you? How did it feel to be apprehended just, you probably see the coastline? Yeah, it was very disappointing and discouraging on one level uh, that to be so close and yet not to be able to actually go into Gaza to meet with the uh, women and children and men who had been preparing uh, and using our trip as a method of kind of encouraging their own people to not give up hope, that indeed there were 13 women and actually many, many more than the 13 that were on the boat, that we represented a lot of people in as uh, citizen diplomats throughout the world of the 19 countries represented by the various women that were on the legs of this trip, that they were not forgotten. And so school teachers had used this as a way to, uh, as a teaching mechanism for students in Gaza, and many of them had come out to the beach, and there were various beach art projects that were done. There were women artists who were painting at the uh, city docks in uh, Gaza City. There had been a a women's uh, media center symposium on international media. 
there have been a lot of things that have happened in Gaza using the vehicle of the women's boat to Gaza. So even though we didn't touch the shores, we certainly, the heart and spirit of the people of Gaza had touched our hearts, and we hope that our mission had touched their hearts. Where is the boat now? The boat right now, I suspect, is in Haifa Harbor, although we left it in uh, Ashdod Harbor, but historically the ships of the flotillas are taken to Haifa Harbor and are put into, well, the Israelis have called it the, the terrorist armada, and in fact they have made a like a tourist attraction, we've heard, out of some of the boats. So we anticipate probably the Zaituna will be taken to join that fleet of boats that we have had starting in 2010. Can I go back to the beginning and you said that you chose people or you, you liaise with people from many different countries to work out about this trip and people to come on it. Can you, can you talk about that international group of people who support in Gaza? Surely, yes. We have, um, as I mentioned, well, we had eight national campaigns that were working on the women's vote to Gaza. And each one of them represent many different types of uh, Palestinian solidarity groups uh, to include boycott, divestment, and sanction groups, as well as general solidarity groups. So each one of those national groups decided uh, which, which people they would nominate to be their national representatives. And, for example, for the United States, we nominated a woman named uh, Naomi Wallace. She's a playwright and an author and has, and has written plays that incorporate themes from Palestinian lives. And we nominated her because we wanted to have artists as a part of our contingent. A second person that we had is a woman by the name of Lisa Gay Hamilton, who is um, uh, an actor. Uh, she's been an actor on TV and several series. And... Uh, has been a Palestinian solidarity activist in her own right. So we thought that, that those two would bring to uh, having them uh, would allow us to kind of tap into uh, another group in the United States that sometimes we kind of leave out, which would be the artist community. So they were our two representatives and uh, very, very good ones. Uh, we had some of the national groups nominated parliamentarians to get the politicians involved in this. Of course, in the United States, we really have very few politicians that have, are brave enough to stand up for Palestinian rights. So we don't really have any that we could nominate. But uh, Sweden, Spain, Algeria, Tunisia, New Zealand, all uh, nominated uh, parliamentarians as, as their participants. Can I go back to the reaction of governments around the world or the the non-reaction of governments around the world to the illegal seizure of your boat in international waters? Well, yes, it's very discouraging when uh, a blatant act of piracy and kidnapping is conducted by um, uh, government force and there's not an international outcry about it. Uh, we certainly, in the United States, uh, we mobilized our networks to call the State Department and the White House to remind them that 
what the Israelis have done is really an act of piracy and stealing our vote and of kidnapping on the high seas American citizens. And to date, uh, we've gotten really no official response from the Secretary of State, who that position used to be my boss when I was a U.S. diplomat myself for 16 years. So it's, it's discouraging here in the United States that U.S. policies still are uh, the protection of the state of Israel no matter what it does. So we have a, we have a very difficult position here to try to move both Democratic and Republican administrations to change their policy, which is pretty much a consistent policy over the years of protecting Israel, no matter what it does. I'm afraid we have exactly the same policy here in Australia, but we keep on trying to shift it along. Tell us then, finally, how are you feeling now and speaking with the other women who were on the ship? How are you all feeling? Well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, early this morning uh, we had a TV show in Malaysia uh, where uh, eight of us, uh, eight out of the 13 actually, were uh, by Skype on the television show in Malaysia. And so it was great to uh, hear the voices of uh, uh, dear friends with whom we've been with over the last two weeks and to hear them again and to briefly compare notes on on uh, what we're doing in our home country to continue to bring the attention of our governments to the plight of the Palestinians. We will continue to keep in touch with each other, and I'm sure we'll be, each one of us will invite others to come to our countries to speak, be a part of speaking tours. So uh, these are new, new friends, but I think they'll be lifelong friends based on this Women's Vote to Gaza mission this year. All I can say is thank you very much and on behalf of all women for the work you do. Well, thank you so much and uh, thank you for your interest. And if you have time, do get in touch with Captain uh, Madeline Habib, uh, an Australian citizen who, without her, we would have been unable to make this mission. She was a key part of this by being our excellent captain who got us 1,715 miles from Spain all the way to uh, almost the shores of Gaza. Bye-bye. Thank you. 1,715 to Gaza, so near and yet so far away. That's Anne Miller, one of the participants on the Zitona Olive, the ship that was stopped by Israel and impounded. And they all got deported back to their country of origin. There is another way you can help, as NASA said before, that's the Walk Run for Palestine on the 6th of November. The address to register is everydayhero.com.au and move forward then to Olive Kids. That's Sunday the 6th of November, 10am to Walk Run Around the Tan, near St Kilda Road, Linlithgow Avenue. It's called Tom's Block. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 
855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. And this is just one other way. I know we publicise this one a lot, but there are some beautiful, beautiful scarves if you haven't seen them. They're just wonderful. And they're here at 3CR. 3CR are selling Kofia Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Well, that is all for me for today. It's coming up to 6 o'clock, time for Dunbar Law, but I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, so I'll say bye for now and that's it.